0: Hearing dark stories in a podcast is one thing, but living in darkness is quite another. If you're living with depression and trying to deal with it using alcohol, illegal drugs, or other bad influences, please pick up the phone right now and get help. 800-831-1560. Every 12 minutes, someone dies of an overdose. Every 6 minutes, from alcohol abuse. Call 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, you can even take a leave of absence from your job and still keep it. 800-831-1560. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. The following episode was originally aired March 10, 2018. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. There was one figure that I was definitely scared of. It was a blue and red, jester-like figure, complete with boots, a hat, a porcelain face, feet, and hands. It appeared to be a happy and harmless knick-knack. But every time I laid eyes on it, I would have terrible nightmares about the thing." My brother would later confess, he also had dreams, and we always had the same dream. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… On March 9, 1929, the perfect murder occurred in New York City. To this day, it has never been solved, despite literally dozens of theories not about the identity of the killer, but as to how the victim was actually killed. Our whole world and our universe might be a virtual reality matrix programmed by the supercomputer of a civilization of beings more advanced than we could possibly imagine. A colorful clown knickknack terrorizes a young girl. And one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of LA law enforcement uncovers a link to one of the most heinous crimes in history. Now, bolt your doors. Lock your windows. Turn off your lights and come with me into the Weird Darkness. On March 9, 1929, the perfect murder occurred in New York City. To this day, it has never been solved, despite literally dozens of theories. Not about the identity of the killer, but as to how the victim was actually killed. Without question, the slaying of Isidore Fink is the ultimate unsolved murder. At 10.30pm on the night of March 9. Laundryman Isidore Fink was working late and his neighbor, Lachlan Smith, heard the unmistakable sounds of a struggle. She rushed to Fink's door, terrified of what she might find. What she discovered were doors and windows locked from the inside, except for a small transom window about the front door. It hung open with its hinge broken. Smith called the police, who soon arrived on the scene. Unable to enter, though, they had to find a young boy who was small enough to fit through the transom and open the door from the inside. The key to the door was in the inside lock. Officers rushed in and found Fink's corpse on the floor. He'd been shot three times, once in the left hand and twice in the chest. Neighbors couldn't explain it. Fink was a cautious man. He lived and worked in a rough neighborhood and was fearful of being robbed. His doors and windows were always locked, and he never allowed strangers to enter his home or business. According to his landlord, Max Schwartz, Fink was a good tenant and never caused trouble. He had no enemies, and he never brought strange women home with him. Detectives were baffled as to why anyone would want to kill the unassuming man. But things got even more puzzling. There was no sign of robbery. Fink had money in his wallet, and his business cash was untouched. A search of the place found no murder weapon or spent cartridges. Other than a body lying in the middle of the floor, the room was undisturbed. Nothing was out of place, and nothing seemed to be missing. The police looked into the possibility that Fink might have been extorted for protection money by gangsters a common practice at the time, but could find no one who saw Fink approached for money or knew about the business problems of any kind. Detectives had no motive for a murder that had been committed in what seemed an impossible manner. With no gun at the scene, suicide was ruled out. The gunshot on his hand showed powder burns, which meant that he had been shot at close range. However, no one could have fled the scene. The doors and windows were all locked from the inside, except for the transom window, which was too small for an adult to climb through. The only fingerprints at the scene belonged to Fink. The murder had no motive, and no one could have committed it. Fink's murder was, by definition, the perfect crime. The New York Police Commissioner, Edward Mulrooney stated that the murder of Isidore Fink was unsolvable. After almost 90 years, that has turned out to be true. The captivating idea that we might be living in a three-dimensional holographic simulation has been put forward by various scientists. We'll explore this mind-boggling idea further and examine some intriguing questions. If we suspect that we are programmed beings living inside a simulation, is there any way for us to find out if this is true? Is it possible to change the outcome of this virtual game? Who could have created this matrix and for what reason? What are ancestor simulations? Our whole world and our universe might be a virtual reality matrix, programmed by the supercomputer of a civilization of beings more advanced than we can possibly imagine. Physicist Alain Aspect conducted a most remarkable experiment demonstrating that the web of subatomic particles that compose our physical universe, the so-called fabric of reality itself, possesses what appears to be an undeniable holographic property. According to a recent theory proposed by Robert Lanza, author of Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness Are the Keys to Understanding True Nature of the Universe, death might not even be real. We might think that we are an advanced species, but we possess limited knowledge of the world around us. We are moved by neurophysiological signals and subject to a variety of biological, psychological and sociological influences over which we have limited control and little understanding. Suppose for a minute that we do live in a matrix and our reality is nothing but an illusion. What is the simulation argument? Nick Bostrom, professor in the Faculty of Philosophy at Oxford University and founding director of the Future of Humanity Institute and the Program on the Impacts of Future Technology within the Oxford Martin School, presented his so-called simulation argument some years ago, and the theory is still widely debated among many scientists. If we omit the mathematical part of the argument, it starts with the assumption that future civilizations will have enough computing power and programming skills to be able to create what I call ancestor simulations, he says. These would be detailed simulations of the simulator's predecessors, detailed enough for the simulated mind to be conscious and have the same kinds of experiences we have. Think of an ancestor simulation as a very realistic virtual reality environment, but one where the brains inhabiting the world are themselves part of the simulation. The simulation argument makes no assumption about how long it will take to develop this capacity. Some futurologists think it will happen within the next 50 years, but even if it takes 10 million years, it makes no difference to the argument," writes Bostrom in his paper, Do We Live in a Computer Simulation? Bostrom says the conclusion is that at least one of the following three propositions must be true. One, almost all civilizations at our level of development become extinct before becoming technologically mature. Two, the fraction of technologically mature civilizations that are interested in creating ancestor simulations is almost zero. Or three, you are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. If we suppose that the first and second suggestions are false, then we can assume that a significant fraction of these civilizations run ancestor simulations. If we work out the numbers we find that there would be vastly many more simulated minds than non-simulated minds. We assume that technologically mature civilizations would have access to enormous amounts of computing power. So enormous, in fact, that by devoting even a tiny fraction to ancestor simulations, they would be able to implement billions of simulations, each containing as many people as have ever existed. In other words, almost all minds like yours would be simulated. Therefore, by a very weak principle of indifference, you would have to assume that you are probably one of these simulated minds rather than one of the ones that are not simulated, Bostrom explains. Bostrom also points out that his simulation argument does not prove that we are really living inside a simulation, because we possess too little information to determine which one of the three is either true or false. We cannot hope that the first assumption is false. Proposition number two requires convergence among all advanced civilizations such that almost none of them are interested in running ancestor simulations. If this were true, it would be an interesting constraint on the future evolution of intelligent life, Bostrom says. To many of us, option number two seems an unlikely scenario, considering the vastness of the universe. And the number of advanced extraterrestrial species we could encounter if we had the means to travel among the stars. Assumption number 3 is without doubt the most intriguing one. We could really be living in a computer simulation created by some advanced extraterrestrial civilization. What Copernicus and Darwin and Latter-day scientists have been discovering are the laws and workings of the simulated reality these laws might or might not be identical to those operating at the most fundamental level of reality where the computer that is running our simulation exists, which of course may itself be a simulation. In a way, our place in the world would be even humbler than we thought, Bostrom explains. Why would an advanced civilization create a virtual world? If each advanced civilization created many matrices of their own history, then most people, like us, who live in a technologically more primitive age, would live inside matrices rather than outside, Bostrom says. We could be a scientific experiment that is closely monitored by those alien beings who programmed the simulation. Even worse, we could be nothing more than a virtual game to our creators, in the same way we enjoy playing computer games. It's really impossible to tell. We have computers strong enough to simulate a basic civilization already. Soon, with enough upgrades, most home computers will be able to simulate an entire universe. If you need money to upgrade your current PC, you could get a Title Max loan. How could we know if we are really living in a Matrix? If the simulators don't want us to find out, we probably never will. But if they choose to reveal themselves, they could certainly do so. If the architects of this virtual reality want us to know we are a holographic being living in a matrix, they can simply make a window pop up in our visual field with the text, you are living in a matrix, click here for more information. Another event that would let us conclude with a high degree of confidence that we are in a simulation is if we ever reach a point when we are about to switch on our own ancestor simulations. That would be very strong evidence against the first two propositions, leaving us only with the third, Bostrom says. How should we live in a matrix? If we knew the architect's motives for designing matrices, then the hypothesis that we live in one might have major practical consequences. But in fact, we know almost nothing about what these motives might be. We would run experiments, discover regularities." build models and extrapolate from past events. In other words, we would apply the scientific method and common sense in the same way as if we knew that we were not in a matrix. To a first approximation, therefore, the answer to how you should live if you are in a matrix is that you should live the same way as if you are not in a matrix, Bostrom says. It would seem there is no way to escape the matrix even if you think that you really managed to escape the Matrix. How will you know it was not just a simulated escape? If you consume energy drinks or coffee during the day, you know how beneficial they can be. Unfortunately you also know how addictive they can be. Coffee, energy drinks, caffeine pills – I have used them all, even all at once and I would still need a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Unfortunately, caffeine will dehydrate you, which is not a good thing when you speak for a living. Cottonmouth is not a voice actor's BFF. But I recently discovered CTFO, and one of their products is a CBD-based oral spray for energy and focus. And Honestly, I didn't really expect it to work, but I was desperate. It works. For some time now, I have not needed naps. Not needed energy drinks, I haven't had a single cup of coffee in not who knows how long. And no more cottonmouth, because there is zero caffeine in this spray. It has also given me a greater amount of focus through the day, which is a huge blessing as busy as I am. A few sprays under my tongue, and I feel more energized and focused almost immediately. If you want to give it a try, I do have a direct link to CTFO's Energy Focus Oral Spray on the Sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, If you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow, I've got one of their seat cushions which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere Pillows, which also helps out with the back problems. And I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. And now in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try My Pillow. Get two premium My Pillows and two Go Anywhere Pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD – click on the four-pack special when you're there. MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800-945-7192 – that's 800-945-7192 – ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. I don't know the best way to start my story. To place you in my young state of mind, I'll let you know I grew up in a house that was haunted, but it was almost fun, not scary. The lights would go on and off, things would move, and you could hear a woman humming when you stirred food in the kitchen. I thought everyone's home was like this and that everyone had a helpful humming cooking partner. I was not a fearful child. My older brother and I were about six or seven, the perfect age when you stayed over at your grandparents' and had the freedom of snacks and other things that your parents limited. My grandmother loved clowns and had many glass cabinets to house them. I loved to look at them for they were bright colored. Some were glass, plush, porcelain. I guess this was before there was a widespread fear of clowns. Moving forward, there was one figure that I was definitely scared of. It was a blue-and-red jester-like figure complete with boots, a hat, a porcelain face, feet, and hands. It appeared to be a happy and harmless knick-knack, but every time I laid eyes on it, I would have terrible nightmares about the thing. My brother would later confess he also had dreams and we always had the same dream. After every nightmare, I would wake up with my grandma accusing me of opening the glass door of the cabinet and taking the doll out to play. You see, it was always knocked over or on the floor outside of the case on the other side of the room, far from its wooden glass home. You best believe I did not touch that clown. Fast forward about a year. My grandparents moved, and my grandma came to our pleasantly haunted home. She wanted to give me something because she said she knew how I liked it so much. She brought and gave me the red and blue clown. I was calm after a moment and figured all will be well because it was just an object. Wrong. I remember waking up from a nightmare about the clown and walking to my brother's room as I often did when I wanted comfort. When I got into his room, he was wide awake. We both looked at each other, and we knew we had both had the dream. I vaguely remember the conversation we had, but I know we planned to get rid of the clown. Now, the scary part. All the electronics in my brother's room went off at the same time. There was your typical RC car and Hot Wheels toys going off with many noises. The worst was his Buzz Lightyear action figure repeatedly stating, To infinity and beyond! Every light-up toy went off and the room was filled with multicolor flashes. So as any young child would do, we ran for it and invaded my parents' room yelling mommy and daddy the entire way. Luckily, my mother believed us because the paranormal was, in a way, our normal. We burned and buried the figure and I never saw it in my dreams again. I'm now 24. I do believe that the clown had something attached to it and when it was brought into our active home, it got to come out and play. I still like clowns, but I'll never like that clown. I may or may not still be mad that my grandma gifted it to me. On March 10, 1928, Los Angeles mother Christine Collins was faced with every parent's worst fear – the disappearance of her child. Her son Walter had vanished. What happened next is one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of LA law enforcement, which eventually uncovered a link to one of the most heinous crimes in history. When Walter disappeared that day, the police initially suspected that he had run away. Christine, however, feared the worst. She refused to believe that her 10-year-old son would simply run off, and she came to the terrible conclusion that he had been kidnapped. She pushed the police into searching, and they began asking questions along the Collins Street and throughout the Lincoln Heights neighborhood where they lived. Finally, a neighbor, Mrs. A. Baker, claimed that she saw Walter in an automobile, begging to be released. The car had been driven by two foreign-looking people. More neighbors came forward. They said that in the days before Walter's disappearance, an Italian-looking man and woman were asking for the Collins address. But the leads went nowhere. There was no trace of the boy or his alleged kidnappers. After searching lakes, ponds, and the northeast part of the city, the case went cold. Christine was devastated but refused to give up hope. Months passed, and she devoted herself to her work in an effort to keep worries about Walter's fate out of her head. She slept little, lost weight, but did not surrender to the idea that her boy was lost forever. Then, five months after he vanished, Christine received the news that Walter had been found alive in DeKalb, Illinois. The boy was put on a train and sent to Los Angeles. The reunion of mother and son was celebrated as a massive success for the police department, which had recently been criticized in the papers for scandals caused by bribery and mistreatment of suspects. There was one problem. As soon as the boy stepped off the train, Christine realized that he was not her son. Captain J.J. Jones refused to listen to what Christine was claiming. He insisted that the boy had changed because of passing time and because of the traumatic conditions under which he had been living. Christine rejected his claims. She'd know her own son, no matter the circumstances. But Jones insisted that the LAPD would not have made a mistake. Trying to avoid humiliation, Jones forced Christine to take Walter home with her for a while to see if her memory would clear and she'd realized that he was her boy. Under pressure from the police, the press, and the public, Christine agreed to take the boy home with her. Subsequently, the police began to question Walter in hopes of finding his abductor. He was asked how he had escaped and how he had ended up in Illinois. Detectives and doctors were unable to get straight answers from him. He said little to nothing, but insisted that he was Walter. Christine knew he was not her son, but she agreed to care for him because he had no one else. She still worked to prove that she was right because she didn't want the police to stop looking for her son. She took him to her family dentist, where she obtained the real Walters dental records to show the difference between her son and the boy who was living in her house. The records did not match, so she took them to Captain Jones the dental records proved to be no help. Jones still didn't believe her, or at least he claimed that he didn't. He concluded that Christine was only trying to humiliate the LAPD and he wouldn't stand for slander, especially from a woman. He knew an easy way to shut her up, one that had been proven effective before, and had Christine committed to the psychiatric ward of the General Hospital as a Code 12 internment. This was a method used by the police to lock up people they saw as being difficult. Christine was treated inhumanely in the hospital. She was drugged and abused so that she would come to her senses and admit that the boy found in Illinois was her son. She spent 10 days locked in the mental ward. She was finally released when Walter finally confessed that his real name was Arthur Hutchins Jr., His only excuse for the ruse? He saw a picture of Walter in the newspaper, saw a resemblance, and decided to seize the opportunity. He knew that if he pretended to be Walter, he'd have a one-way ticket to Los Angeles where he might meet some of his favorite stars and have a chance to make it in the movies. Even though Christine was relieved that the ruse was over, her son was still missing. She returned to work and her daily routine of working going home and hoping to learn Walter's fate. Meanwhile in Wineville, California, a horrific series of events was taking place. It all began to unravel when a young woman named Jessie Clark decided to check up on her young brother, Sanford, who had moved to California two years earlier to live with their uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcote, and his mother, Sarah Louise. Jessie had become increasingly concerned about Sanford's safety and his situation with Gordon. She decided to travel down from Canada and see what was going on at their chicken ranch. Her worst fears were soon realized. Gordon was a cruel, abusive man, and he treated Sanford terribly. When she spoke up, Gordon slapped her. She tried to get Sanford to leave, but the boy was too afraid. Jessie fled the ranch returned to Canada, and told her mother everything. Mrs. Clark immediately informed the police. When local police were told about the possible abuse, they made a visit to the isolated ranch outside of Wineville. When Gordon saw police cars approaching, he told Sanford to stall them as long as he could. The boy did as he was told. He was terrified of his uncle. Gordon and his mother fled and were not captured until they reached British Columbia, it was Sanford who put the police on their trail. The boy was traumatized by his life on the ranch and he told a blood-curdling story of the horrible things that had taken place there. Sanford confessed to being forced into committing murder by Gordon. He had made him an unwilling accomplice in kidnapping and murder. Boys were being held at the ranch, murdered with an axe and then buried. One of those boys, Sanford later confessed, had been Walter Collins. In shock and disbelief, the police allowed Sanford to lead them back to Wineville, where they began searching for the remains of the dead boys. They found library books and clothing belonging to missing children in the chicken coop, where Gordon and Sarah Louise had kept them locked up. A note was discovered, written by two brothers named Winslow, who had gone missing only 30 miles from where Walter had been taken. The note read, Don't worry, we are fine. Sanford took the police to the graves, but the bodies were gone. Only scraps of clothing and a few stray bones remained. Gordon and Sarah Louise had burned the bodies and scattered the remains in the desert after Jesse Clark had left the ranch without her mother. Some human bones and a blood-soaked mattress did turn up, but the Northcuts could only be charged with the deaths of the Winslow brothers, Nelson and Lewis, and a ranch hand named Alvin Gothea on December 3, 1928, Gordon Northcutt confessed to the three murders but hinted that there had been at least four more. The authorities believed they killed at least 20. Sarah Louise Northcutt confessed to the murder of Walter Collins, but his remains were never found. Gordon was eventually hanged for the murders. His mother was sentenced to life in prison. As far as Christine Collins was concerned, Walter was still missing. Since his remains had not been found, she held out hope that he might still be alive. She traveled to the penitentiary to meet Northcutt and ask if his mother had truly killed her son. Even though the Northcuts had confessed to his murder, he told Christine that they had not killed Walter. Whether he was telling the truth or was merely taking advantage of her hope, we will never know. Gordon Stewart Northcutt was hanged on October 2, 1930, At San Quentin. He took whatever he knew to the grave with him. The murders became known as the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders, and the slayings and the vanishing of Walter Collins inspired the Clint Eastwood-directed film Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins. It is a highly recommended film. Christine Collins sued the LAPD and won a $10,800 lawsuit against Captain Jones' For sending her to the psychiatric ward and for his insistence that Hutchins' boy was Walter. He never paid her, and he was only given a four-month suspension for what he had done. As for Christine, she clung to the words that Gordon Northcutt had said to her from his prison cell, and she never gave up hope that her son might be returned to her alive. She died in 1964, still refusing to believe that her son was dead. Sadly, Walter Collins never returned. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Disappearance of Walter Collins – The Real-Life Story of Changeling was written by Troy Taylor. DO WE LIVE IN A COMPUTER SIMULATION CREATED BY AN ADVANCED ALIEN CIVILIZATION WAS POSTED AT Messagetoeagle.com. FEAR OF A CLOWN WAS SUBMITTED DIRECTLY TO WEIRDDARKNESS.COM BY CAMILLE. THE LOCKED ROOM MURDER – THE UNSOLVED CASE OF Isidore FINK WAS WRITTEN BY TROY TAYLOR. MUSIC IN THIS EPISODE IS BY SHADOWS SYMPHONY – YOU CAN FIND THEM ONLINE AT FACEBOOK.COM SLASH SHADOWS SYMPHONY. I also used some pieces from Midnight Syndicate – you can find a link to their website as well in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness… The Lord of the Elements wants to change reality. He has enlisted the evil Zeltan to help him, and together they will try to recruit Stanley, a man gifted with incredible imaginative capabilities to help them. Unless Edward and his friends can stop them, that is. A tale of white and black magic, quantum physics, and a plot that twists and turns. If you like science fiction fantasy, and horror, you'll love The Last Observer – A Magic Battle for Reality by G. Michael Vasey. Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorrance Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362, 847 1362 Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Doran's Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast.